0: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks.
1: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an absolute legend in the mobile home park space in Mr. Frank Rolfe. But before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Could you please take an extra 30 seconds and head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thank you for doing that. All right, let's dive in. Frank Rolfe has been an investor in mobile home parks for almost two decades and has owned and operated hundreds of mobile home park communities during that time. He is currently ranked with his partner, Dave Reynolds, as the fifth largest mobile home park owner in the U.S., with over 250 communities spread out over 25 states. But it all began with one mobile home park, Glenhaven in Dallas, Texas. Frank is also a top educator in the space with Mobile Home University. Frank, welcome to the show. Andrew, thanks a lot for letting me be here. Awesome. Can you... Start out by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got into manufactured housing.
0: Sure, it's kind of a strange story. So prior, prior to the, my mobile home park life, I had a, another life in another industry called billboards, signs along freeways. And so when you build billboards, you talk to a lot of different property owners, you have to be certain spacings and zonings because it's also federally regulated. And as I was out building billboards, I happened to build two billboards on a mobile home park called Glenhaven on I-35 freeway. So after I built the billboards, I would occasionally get calls from the guy that owned the place called Ron, asking me to go over to the manager's trailer and find out why he wouldn't take his calls. So since I was always out in the car checking billboards, renting ad space, I'd when I drove by Glenhaven, pull in, knock on the guy's trailer, and say, "Ron wanted me to come by and see why you will not answer the phone." <laughs> right, and the guy would be uh, okay. And so that that was my that was my duty there. So then when I sold the billboard business off. In 1996, uh, too too young to not do another another business adventure. So I uh, started calling my landowners. I built billboards on to learn about their businesses. I didn't know if I should be like a Dairy Queen franchisee or what I should do. And so I called up Ron. And on that one call, he changed the course of it all because he said, "I'll sell you right now on the phone for 400 grand, 10,000 down. I'll carry 390 for 30 years." And I said, Ron, the fact that you would sell me this on our very first call together leads me to believe it's losing money He goes, yes, it's losing two grand a month. So I said, bingo. But I thought, you know what? I'll risk 10 grand to see if I can fix the two grand. And if I can fix the two grand and, and the numbers tie, then what the hell? I'll own a mobile home park, even though at the time, given my stereotype, like all Americans, it was it sounded horrific to me. Right, but nevertheless, I thought hey, I'll take the gamble. That's how I got in the
1: business. It was completely random, like that. Wow, that that is just quite the story. So, maybe tell us about that. I mean, I've heard the story through the through the boot camps. So sure, maybe you can tell us about Glenhaven and and what yeah. turned out from that. Okay,
0: community. so well, you know, Ron owned it free and clear, so he had no financial pressure on it. So he he had not been well managing it because he lived in California. No, nowhere near the property and had lost over the years, lost interest in it entirely. So I had to figure out on the PL how to get the revenue up and the, and, the, and the cost cut. Revenue was a joke. He was charging a lot render like $170, I believe, in Dallas at that time, which was ludicrously low, hundreds of dollars below market. That was problem A. Problem B was that he uh, had this Insano cable thing going where he was paying cable, full cable, for every lot in the park, but he was half empty. So his cable bill was 2,000 something a month. And so I just turned it off, That that's how I solved the 2,000. <laughs> and then I got a humongous break on the revenue because I had half the lots to fill. They shut another mobile home park down in Dallas, downtown. And I went to the owner of the park and we cut a deal because he had to get the trailers moved out as part of his agreement with Dallas to rezone it to build a Home Depot. So he sent the people my way. And I, and I, so I, I, I didn't get Glenhaven completely full in the one transaction, but really close. I took like 30 families. Wow! So suddenly my numbers are working. I got, I got enough revenue. I've cut the costs. It's working. And I decided maybe mobile home parks are a new adventure for me. My turn on was the seller financing. That was a huge turn on. I was also turned on by the fact that they were so bungly mismanaged my moms and pops Maybe it was a very inefficient market, and I could buy things insanely cheap, and that's and that's how I got involved in it. it, it you know, on the front that's end, it great. wasn't because I had any great love or dream of being in the affordable housing space. It was purely mathematical, purely economic. Uh, I just I just saw an opportunity there, and that's what I did.
1: That's fantastic. Let me ask you this, Frank: What are the most important things passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks?
0: Well, you know, the, the key drivers of mobile home parks are pretty simple. It's a very simple business model, right? And and the sum of the parts, I, I put it in the acronym of IDEAL. Uh, infrastructure, you need to have good roads, good water, good sewer, good power, good gas, good everything like that, because you can't survive if you can't deliver utilities to the customers. And then you got to have their correct density so that the fire marshal doesn't shut you down and that people want to live there. Uh, you got to have good economics, obviously, or you wouldn't want it. Uh, the age of homes needs to be a, a nice uh, variation of ages so that majority are paid in full. And then you want to have a good location, which to us, everyone has their own opinions. We, we like uh, you know nice suburban areas or, or the occasional gritty urban park as long as it's some, someplace someone would want to live. But those are kind of the key drivers to any deal. And if, if a deal meets those specs and the market is decent, which means it's large enough and has the correct diversity of employment and the correct kinds of employment, then to us, that's an investment grade deal. That's kind of stuff that most people would buy.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree with that. I, quick question about the market. You know, there's really kind of two avenues that I've seen for operators right now. There's like the value add play in, in secondary and tertiary markets. And then there's like the more stabilized play in your primary markets. That's more of like a, a five cap. You know, yeah. what would you say is the, is the better play and why? Okay, well, there there
0: there are two very different takes on the model. So if you're going to buy the the deal at the five cap, uh, in in the well-known urban hot market, you're you're still going to have to have some upside in that, because we're all we're all uh, you know at the mercy of interest rates. And right now, people are buying a lot of low cap rates because interest rates are in, insanely low. And I think they will remain insanely low. I don't think they'll go up a lot. Mm-hmm. But you do want to have some upside. I mean, you want to be able to push the rents, fill some lots, things like that on those buys. A lot of times when you see those things advertised, they're not truly selling at a four or five cap. It's a four or five cap based on mom and pop. And then they don't tell you there's a there's a sudden rent raise coming that'll boost it up a little bit. Uh, but the key, what makes those work is the is the existence of conduit and agency debt, right? So people are getting a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan at 3%, which allows them to buy at Five percent, and still have an, a decent enough spread to do okay. And but they also have implied into that rent raises. And then you have the more suburban, exurban stuff. That's the majority of stuff that we own. Uh, the big play there is you. You can typically find lots of good stuff at really attractive pricing. That, that's more mom and pop driven. If you get outside of the over sometimes overheated hot markets, right? So if you look at our holdings, we're in a few hot markets, but we're in other really boring places like the St. Louis Metro, Kansas City Metro, you know, places that are flyover states, off the chart, nobody cares, doesn't have a TV show. There's no Housewives of St. Louis show I've seen <laughs> out there. And so basically that's where you can often find the best deals because there's not as much competition in it. So but both both models are basically sound if you do it correctly.
1: Okay. And you know and I think you know the time horizon is what the big differential is, right? Like the, the value add deal that you can infill and and you can submeter water sewer and your rent increases are probably going to be slower, you know, in, in a Midwestern type of market versus a hot market like, you know, say Austin, Texas, where, right. you know, you could raise rents faster, but you know, your your time horizon may be 10 years instead of a you know getting it to a 10 cap year two, right? Correct. It it really all revolves
0: around goals. It's like we sold a park once to a guy and he he bought it for all cash, which is odd. And we said to the guy, you know, after it had closed, like, well, what, 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 what's your plan with this thing? And he goes, oh, I, you know, I don't have any big plans. I just want to get more than I do in a CD. <laughs> it, was, it was just a wealthy doctor. And he, he was getting at the time 2% in a CD. And he was buying the thing. And I don't know at that time, it was like a six cap or something. And so that was three times what he was getting. So his goal was, was perfectly satisfied, but that wouldn't work for other people. The, other, the yeah. average person would not want to buy a park for all cash at 6%. So you got to look at your own goals. And a lot of those deals that sell, they sell to REITs, people who don't even have any skin in the game. They just basically work there. They get an asset under management fee and AUM, and they just want to grow to mainly often grow the AUM. But everyone has their own goals in life. And if the park works for you personally, then it you works. know that's fantastic. And if it doesn't work for you, then don't do it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Frank, how do you see parks in secondary markets and, and and even tertiary markets, performing during a downturn compared to those parks that are like in a primary market, you know, like we talked about Austin, Texas, for example.
0: Yeah, you know, we're we're seeing the suburban exurban parks performing amazingly well. Uh, I mean, here's a strange stat for you because we have parks in hot and and tertiary markets, and our our key occupancy gains over the last few years have all been. In places like Farmington, New Mexico, wow. right, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I mean, these are not places that mo- the average American would say, "Oh my God, I got to invest there." That is so hot, but that seems to be the deal. If you really look at what's going on, is you know, the, the demand for affordable housing is kind of a nationwide phenomenon, but you do have this kind of, uh, you know, what they call the great reshuffling, people pushing out, wanting to get out of the urban core due to social quarantine, urban unrest, whatever you want to make of it. So we're, we're pretty pumped. I mean, if you if you look at all of our stats, because we're in 28 states, over 200 properties, and you rate those based on uh, gains as far as net fill and rent increase and everything else known to man, th- those lesser known markets have performed better on average than the hotter markets. Now, the reason is simple. The hotter markets just don't have that much upside left in them, because oftentimes those have been nearly exhausted. I mean, let's just focus on Austin for a minute, right? I mean, we sold our park in North Lamar, uh, what, last year, I believe. And, you know, North Lamar, when we bought the thing, the rents were at 350 I think, 360 When we sold it, it was at 630 Wow! And uh, upon the tenants buying it, you know, Austin kicked in the money and the tenants bought it from us using a company called ROC. The very mm-hmm. first thing they did is they raised the rents again, I think, to 680 Wow, when you're when you're at a 680 rent in a in a high density urban park like that, I don't know where you're heading with that. Yeah. And so, I personally, I'd rather be in a park in Omaha, Nebraska, at a 300 rent, than in Austin, Texas, at a 680 rent. And so, we're we're probably more bullish on on those more off the grid. Markets, because I again, at the end of the day, it's income property, right? Uh, the, you know, the top. If you say, "What's the best mobile home park in America?" Well, that would be the one that has, has the, the the most profitability, and it would not be the parks you would typically think. I mean, you'd say, "Well, it's going to be one of those parks in California on the beach," but no. If the guy bought that at a two cap, yeah. then no, that would not be the yeah. most successful park because it, it, it's all about money. That's 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 the key. And so, if you're making money, you're a hero. If you're not, you're a zero, and you're gonna you have a better shot of making money. In those in those secondary markets right now than you do in the primary simply because you, you've kind of you're kind of topped out the airplane there's just not a whole lot of altitude left in some of those hot hot markets
1: yeah I, I follow you on that that's that's where a lot of our parks are as well and sure you know during covid collections have remained above 95 percent you know mm-hmm. occupancy has stayed high uh, maybe you can talk about covid and, and kind of how your portfolio fared during the yep.
0: Sounds just, just like yours, Andrew. I mean, basically, our, our collections are typically off about 3% of where they were, which is a, a fraction of our contemporaries. I mean, you talk to a guy with upscale apartments, and his collections are off 30 40%. So, it's, it's not sustainable. They can't even cover the mortgage. In the mobile home park, of all the operators I talked to, I talked to hundreds and hundreds of operators. Nobody, with a few exceptions. There are people in certain markets that did get whacked. For example, if you're in Las Vegas, where when they shut the strip down, they literally unemployed the entire city, Jeez. Uh, there's no way that's going to work. But in our typical park, our customers are kind of in two camps. They're either retired or they're in essential jobs. So we saw really no impact from the from COVID at all. Our business model is deemed essential. Our businesses were not shut down. We had to adapt to office requirements that we had to be more socially Distant in some states, we had to close the office. We could be open, but we could not allow anyone in, which was awkward. Hmm. But uh, it, it really wasn't that big a deal. The only thing that's really harmed us, as you know, is this whole evictions moratorium. Uh, it, what really bugs me about it is not really been necessarily the impact, it's just so insanely unjust that that's the part I don't get. I mean, it, when, when, when the thing first happened, okay, we were trying to figure out as a nation what's the thing do you know, I was concerned about COVID because I read the early reports It did things to your brain, like it would cause blood clots in your brain and all this crazy stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe this is like some of these sci-fi movies my daughter watches like 2012 (laughs) or day after tomorrow. And this is truly the end. And we're all going to die from this because we're all going to have our (laughs) brains blow up. But, you know, after it was decided it was, weren't going to blow up, uh, then they, instead of relaxing some of the restrictions They just kept at it. And they kept at it because the government doesn't want to pay the bill. So they're trying to stick it to private property owners, to house people that the government should be paying. And it's a joke when they bring out these programs, like the recent $25 billion uh, will help the landlord bill. I did the calculations. There's more than $25 billion of rent lost per month in the U.S. right now over the moratorium based on the government's own statistics. So what a joke. They're, They're trying to make out that they put landlords in a bad position, for it'll be one year next month, and they're gonna and they're gonna make it up to us with a with a twenty five billion dollar stimulus. Wow, that's a pathetic insult. So yeah, that's the only that's been the only bad part of it. Now the, on the good side, we, our home sales have never been higher uh, in, in American history than during COVID, and that's because during COVID people found that they hated apartments and they wanted some space and they wanted a yard. And I don't think they will ever go back from that. I think people learned permanently they hate apartments. And so I think mobile home parks are in just the right position for that because we compete with apartments, but we offer detached housing. So COVID has been extremely beneficial in promoting our product. That's So the bad effect has been collections, and the good effect has been the sales.
1: Yeah, that's, that's similar to, uh, to what we've seen. Frank, where do you think we're at in the market cycle right now? You know, are we at the top? You know, cap rates are compressed, or do you think we still have room to grow?
0: Okay. Well, I, I was in the, the, the actual cap rate compression, and I remember it well, and the year, years of cap rate compression were in the 2000s. So cap rates were hugely compressed about 2003-ish up till the Great Recession. And why I say that is I was selling parks in my early portfolio in that era for cap rates lower than interest rates. Wow! So, so, so to, if we were to match that today, if the rates were two, 2.8, you'd have to be selling them for 0.8. Jeez. We're not. There's still a, there's still a spread now. That's because the lending community is not as aggressive now as it had been then, because again, everyone buys with debt. So when you have a bubble, it's because banks embrace the bubble, right? That that's the problem. And so in the in our industry, fortunately, since we have this terrible stereotype, banks have never been that aggressive. I see most of our loans. I see very few foreclosures. I don't. I rarely get a call from anyone with a foreclosed mobile home park loan. So. Uh, I I think from a banking perspective, we're we're not in danger there. I don't think we're in cap rate compression. Uh, I think the biggest thing you're going to see is you're in this current cage fight between socialism and capitalism, and you have a lot of states that want to stick it to those who house anyone to do their work for them. So since Section 8 is bankrupt, they can only take 20% of the applicants. uh, They're trying to figure out ways to make private property owners a player in a game we don't want to be involved in. I care nothing about this socialism, capitalism cage fight. It's not my business. I'm a mobile home park owner, but you know there may be states going forward, blue states particularly that 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 seize upon rent control. We saw that the last few years. Saw it in Oregon. Saw it in New York. Um, so I see that 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 is a danger to the industry. And then of course, uh, naturally, the bulk of the value in the industry is is uh, and pushing rents. At some point, uh, we will all be full. Right. I mean, we buy damaged parks and fill them. Our our overall occupancy of our portfolio is nearing around 90%. When we bought it, it was far, far less. And at some point in the near future, we'll be at 100%. So then there won't be any further opportunity in filling lots. And then on the rents, you know, at some point, we'll all hit a a rent that we all perceive as being as high as it can justifiably be. And that shuts down. So we're not at, we're now at the top of the market, still plenty of opportunity. Uh, but at some point, all those will come together, and then the industry will change enormously. And, and uh, I think you'll then see a whole lot of consolidation, because the players will be seeking lower yields, but they'll be willing to buy because the stuff will be in a better quality. Uh, so I don't know, there's, there's still a lot of future left in this industry. I mean, it's, we're nowhere near, I mean, storage by comparison, which is our closest uh, neighbor, I mean, they're, they're, they're screwed, they're done. Uh, you're seeing declining rents, declining occupancy. They 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 took the guidance off the motor, and they way overbuilt. I think they built five billion square feet over the last few years. So wow. they ruined every market. So if I was a storage investor, I'd say, Oh my gosh, th- this is a terrible time to buy. We're all going to die unless you buy storage out in suburban areas. But in our industry, I don't have that, I don't have that feeling at all. I mean, even in Austin, Texas, there's still opportunities to buy stuff and make money with it but at the same time, we all have to acknowledge it doesn't go on forever. So yeah. we're not at the end of the cycle, but we're much farther into the cycle than you would have been if you were buying parks 10 or 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, totally. And maybe you could tell us about that, Frank. You know, How different is the business now compared to when you started? You know, What are the, the main things that have changed?
0: Okay, well, when I started in the mid-90s, which uh, my partner Dave also started then, as, as did Sam Zell. Sam Zell got in the business, I think in 95. Wow. Uh, in the 90s, banking didn't exist. That was the first difference between then and now. You'd go, you take a park to to a bank, and they just laugh at you. So it was it was all seller carry in the '90s. It, unless you had an amazing banking relationship, uh, it didn't exist. There was no there was no Fannie Freddie back then uh, for parks uh, and conduit. Conduit didn't really give a rat's rear. And then uh, so that that was problem one. Problem two, since there was no banking. Uh, the industry was much more Wild West free-for-all. People were buying and selling parks with deficient utilities, bad roads, <laughs> things you could never get away with today. There was no governance. There was no appraisals. Uh, it, was, it was literally the Wild West. So, some survived. Some died. Uh, some people built business models that would never work. Nobody stopped them because there was no bank, no appraisers say, no, that's stupid. So uh, the big transitions from the 90s to now is the industry was a joke in the 90s. Now it's like serious business. There's like professional thought put into it. Lending is available. The quality of the product is better. The mobile home park product is better. So it's just a whole different space today. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was just embarrassing. I remember back when I bought Glenhaven and I would ask people, so like, what do you, who'd like who, who's the most state-of-the-art park in Dallas that I can visit to try and emulate? And they're like, oh yeah, well, you want to go down to this park called Oso Grande. And Oso Grande today would be considered just a just a two-star, wow. but it was at the time, since all parks were in such horrible condition, if you had roads that didn't have potholes the size of a Volkswagen, you were considered a hot operator. <laughs> so it was just a different environment. The, the, the environment now is much better. It was really yeah. hard for people back then. It was very risky, no liquidity. If you bought a park on seller carry and fixed it, you still had to sell it yourself on seller carry. So hmm. I, I like it much better now. It's kind of like when people say, wow, I wish I'd lived in you know the Victorian times or the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, but you had no healthcare, right? <laughs> I'd, I'd rather have medicine, uh, surgery, penicillin. So you you got to make sure what you wish for. So I I like the current era so much more than I like the '90s. '90s '90s was not my not my cup of tea.
1: What What would you say was like the hardest time you've seen for the business? You know, in the last e- twenty years.
0: Easily easy answer to that one. Uh, many people are not old enough to have been there but it's what happened in 1999 it was called the great chattel collapse so what happened was park owners had been having such an easy go of it i had a park for example uh up in uh up in the sherman sherman texas market a place called how texas i had a palm harbor dealer delivering me seven homes a month wow okay when you're bringing me seven homes a month at no cost to me filling my lots it, you look like a genius, right? And then you multiply that times all the other dealers. You could fill anything in the in the late '90s. And the reason you could do it is they were doing 30-year no-income doc loans on mobile homes. So any wow. idiot could go in, sign a paper, and they got a mobile home. And the problem was, when you when you sell that bubble in motion, it ultimately always blows, and it blew in 1999. In between 1999 and 2000, we had parks where this is back in my early portfolio. I had parks where I lost any given year 20, 30 percent of the occupancy three wow. possession. And I mean they dragged the trailers out. They didn't even call the owner. They dragged them out, took them to storage yards, and auctioned them. And it was a bloodbath. So that was the worst. And every day you didn't know. You'd be like, call the manager. We lost anyone today. Yeah, we lost three people today. And you'd be like, just ever tanking occupancy. It was absolutely terrifying. And that's probably one of the reasons today we prefer parks that have older paid-for homes. Uh, but the other good news is they haven't done 30-year no-income doc loans since that era because those people were all wiped out. Let me give you one quick story of how bad it was, Andrew, just to give you an idea because it just sounds impossible to modern people, all right? But during this period, I did all my own eviction work, went to every court myself. So I'm doing an eviction stand in Corsicana on a trailer that has just come in four months earlier, brand new trailer. So I go to the evictions court and someone is there and they say, we speak no English. So the judge tells me, well, you have to wait I by logging in a translator. So he gets the translator. So I hang out for 30 minutes. So then everyone else has already left. It's just me, the judge and the person in the courtroom translator. And so they uh, he asked the person what is going on. And then they say, well, you know, uh, I'm sorry. I've got, I'm unemployed. I have five kids and my boyfriend has run off and abandoned me. I have no way to pay the bills. And so he, the judge says, well, I'm sorry, ma'am. I, I have to rule, you know, in the landlord's favor to evict you. And she's like, okay, that's cool. And that was the deal. So I come out of court and I call up the dealer that had just brought in the home. I said, Hey buddy, I, I mean, I was just in evictions court and I don't know who you sold that home to, but he ran off and left his girlfriend in the home. She's got five kids and unemployed. Don't speak English. He goes, no, that was the customer. I said, wait a minute, you financed on a 30 year mortgage, someone with no job at all. And he's like, yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you do that? He said, I put down that she does garage sales for a living. Oh my gosh! I was like you are freaking kidding me! Wow! And that's how the industry was back then. It was it was rampant, rampant collusion, fraud, a mess. And yeah. that was the, that was the industry's dirtiest time. And that and that was back in the late '90s, early 2000s.
1: Wow! Yeah, I could not imagine. You know, every day worrying about occupancy because now, you know, move outs are very rare. You very know, rare. Absolutely ever. correct.
0: That's yeah. correct. I mean, today, if your manager calls you, it's typically you're filling a lot, right? Not losing one.
1: (laughs) So it's a different world. It really is. What about, tell us about like 2006 when everybody could get a a single family home loan. You know, I've read some things about how the REITs struggled at that time because they were able to qualify for the single family, you know, stick-built house.
0: Correct. That Yeah, that, that was a weird era. Going back to my eviction stories, I go to a guy that we're going to go to court and I want to offer him cash for keys. And he says, well, I'll just go ahead and give you the home. I'm moving out. And I said, well, where are you going? He goes, I'm going across the street to that subdivision. I said, dude, that's a break. The sign says from like 199,000. He goes, yeah, I'm moving in. I said, you can't even pay the money here. He goes, I got a zero down, no income doc loan. And I'm going to go over there and give that a whirly-durly. So, yeah. I was, I was scared, but it was a very short window, right? I mean, they really got wacky on the lending. It it wasn't, it it was kind of gradual and then sudden explosion right before the thing blew. But yes, it was terrifying for a brief while to be in the affordable housing business when customers could choose a home and a brick custom home in a subdivision. But that, that, that was another bubble that blew. And I don't see that repeating itself.
1: And, and, you know, how did the parks do? Was it a, a you know an exodus? Of- they did
0: pretty well actually because you know the, the problem was even in the no income doc era with the single family you still had to have some things go in your way like the ability to have good BS skills and I mean even though it was no income documentation zero down you had to like have at least enough minimum people skills uh, dress appropriately uh, you know ha- there were a few items required that they couldn't come up with. I mean, there were still some cash items you had to have to buy it. You had to have closing costs. And many park residents did not have that. Now, that's because I have always served the affordable housing side. So it's people with, with the lowest incomes. But I imagine there's many park operators at that time who were trying to sell forty dollars and $50,000 mobile homes to people driving Hondas. And yeah, they'd all go to the st- stick-built thing. So I don't think I hit the brunt of that. I, I mean, there were probably markets that were much more bloodied like I imagine Denver, for example, where, where housing prices are high, the people typically have higher credit. If you were in that market, yeah, I could see you getting whacked, but I was insulated to some degree.
1: That's good. You know, a lot of people may not know that you studied economics at Stanford. Correct. And, you know, we're, we're kind of in an interesting time right now with, with all this government stimulus and things going on. You know, how do you think mobile home parks would fare if there's a huge amount of inflation, uh, or what? What if the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve currency? You know, how do you think mobile sure. home parks would? Yeah,
0: that, well, you know, again, being be, be, being a student of economics and a voracious reader today of economic items, the the, the 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 best thing to be in in inflation, regular inflation or hyperinflation, is in fact real estate. Real estate and gold have been the 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 gold standard of the inflation hedge. Right, so that's what people gravitate into. So I'm not worried about mobile home parks from an inflation perspective. I'm I'm, where I'm puzzled in the whole economics is there are so many apparent bubbles right now in the in the securities industry, namely the stock market and the bond market. It makes no sense, right? I mean, you've you've got companies like Tesla, and I know everyone thinks it's kind (laughs) of cool. Their new Cyber Truck is neato looking, but you can't you can't get rid of the simple fact that business is about money. The valuations. Are about money, and then Mark Cuban gave this bizarre economic quote recently that that those don't matter anymore. We've entered a new era. All that matters is what people think things are worth. So now he's wanting us to all unhook from the whole idea of of businesses making money that that be part of the valuation. And that to me, that's instant bubble. So when you, when you lose all moorings, when you just let go of all the the ropes off the dock and you just float out to sea on that principle, you're going to die. And th- that's why every day I expect the market to fall 10,000 points or 20,000 points. I'm not sure if it fell 20,000 points, it was still tie back to the old days of PE ratios, which traditionally was based on you know, a 10, was considered a normal. Today, that number is what, 100? And wow. in the case of things like uh, Amazon and Tesla, it's in the thousands. And it just, it makes, so as an economist, I would rate that as my number one concern. My number two concern is just the national debt. I mean, we don't seem to have any feeling of guilt at all about borrowing trillions and trillions of dollars. I mean, it's wacky. I remember back in the days of Clinton, who was a Democrat, and we had we actually had a surplus during that period because we all thought as a nation we're supposed to not actually not have debt. And now we've gotten Mm -hmm. debt crazy and and economically debt crazy has never had a good ending in all of the years of economics. The other thing I also will point out as an economics person, which anyone who studied economics in college knows. All economic crashes have occurred, or all the big ones have occurred, within the first year of a new presidential term. And I think a lot of people thought that it was last year that we would broken the cycle. No, 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 it, it wasn't. I mean, last year was a precursor, but it didn't, it didn't do the damage where it needed to be. The stock market did decline. It came roaring back. Home prices have come roaring back. Right now, you have, you have every bubble of my lifetime at the same time. You have stock, massive stocks, massively overvalued single-family, massively overvalued everything, and something's going to blow. And I don't know what the trigger event will be, but I, I I think the worst is still yet to come in the very near future. I would imagine sometime this year, or worst case next year. And in fact, if you look at economists, eighty-something percent of all world economists are predicting the same thing. So maybe we all went to economic school at the same spot at the same moment in time. Uh, Maybe we have a new world order that Mark Cuban is secretly heading up behind the scenes, (laughs) but you know, math is math. And when you take, well, that's why, uh, you know, uh, Unger, Warren Buffett's partner, recently said this is the scariest moment in American history economically because none, none of the charts, the graphs, the science is all completely unhinged. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're all, we're all dry. You know, the U S is now driving a car with all the lug nuts missing with all, the ball, with all the tires completely bald, going on a one inch thick sheet of ice. And we're all pretending like everything's going good. And it isn't. And at some point the car is gonna blow the tire, tire will fall off, slide across the ice. And that's why I'm very comfortable with the mobile home parts because to me, it's, it's a gigantic contrarian hedge. and that, And that's why I'm still very happy in that industry because I feel like if I have to be in something, uh, I, I, I prefer real estate to gold because gold is not income-producing. So to me, that's an easy choice. And in the real estate sector, clearly, particularly after COVID, mobile home parks are the best you can do. I mean, I'm not—it's just not because I'm in it. That's just the way the movie ended, which I, no one would have anticipated. You know, two years ago, two years ago, in the mm-hmm. rankings of real estate mobile home park owners were considered, but now that uh, retail office lodging have all been destroyed, and even apartments to some degree. We look at like utter geniuses out of sheer and utter luck. So I'm very very happy being in the mobile home park business.
1: Wow, you you just dropped some golden nuggets there. I mean, somebody needed to hear that that has been, you know, uh, taking some riskier bets. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I follow Ray Dalio, and he's been saying we're on the verge of a civil war for for quite a while now. And
0: well, let, let me give you my quick opinion on that. All right. Because yeah, again, please. I ponder at all kinds of things. You're not on the brink of any kind of civil war. What's happening is, you know, Europe is kind of like America, right? But they're all separate countries. You've got, you know, England and you've got France, but they're they're the size of states. And that's how the US has become. We're basically, we're not really a, a nation of states. It's just basically we're just a bunch of countries. And I live in Missouri and Missouri as a country has nothing to do with California as a country. Hmm. And, uh, I, I see going forward what would be more important to people rather than living in a nation, we live in what state you're in. Hmm. And the states are going to become extremely more divergent in their laws, their taxation system, all kinds of items. So you really need to match if there's something people should be thinking about beyond mobile home parks, think about where you're living. I mean, if you're, if you don't align with your state's values, if you say, no, the state is not doing what I like, uh, you might want to consider getting the heck out of there. You've seen that recently, right? You, you've seen yeah. uh, Elon Musk, who was a huge fan of California, loved California, wrote articles on how much California was the greatest place in the world. And what did he do? He moved down to Austin, <laughs> right? So, because uh, he he saw the bigger picture, which is that over time, the states. I mean, people will re- even where I am in Missouri, we don't really care about national news at this point. I don't care about Missouri news. I live in Missouri. I don't live in. I mean, I'm, yes, I'm within the boundaries of America, but that's like saying someone is in the boundaries of the United Kingdom, but they don't care because they live in Scotland versus, uh, you know, Ireland or or England. So I, I think that's the future. It's not. It's not. not we're not going to have a war. We're not going to have the state of Missouri declaring war on the state of of California, but you are going to have a war between where people elect to live and to locate their business. Those states who have done a bad job of promoting a good quality of life will suffer greatly, which you already seen. New York is losing people hand over fist and they're they're losing all the affluent people. The affluent people who can afford to leave, they've all, they're all left. The problem is they're not coming back. And so New York is not gonna be able to pay its bills. right? And when you don't pay your bills, you won't have police and you won't have fire and then it will only get worse and it will just keep doing down, down, down and down and down and you don't wanna be in New York. Then you'd be like, well, I'm yeah. getting out of here. So I think you'll see some giant shifts. People were changing because of weather But it's no longer about weather. I mean, weather was why they went to California, but now based on politics and economics, they're they're migrating out of California. So you see a whole reshuffling of the map, is what I is what
1: I see. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think about the US dollar in in like the reserve currency? You know, do you do you think that it's at risk? You know, the
0: only reason the US dollar I think is highly valued is because all the other currencies of the world are 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 considered more risky, right? We're kind of people have confidence in the dollar. If that confidence should should fall for any reason, then you're gonna have a real problem because a lot of us is based on our reputation. It's like the old Warren Buffett. It takes a lifetime to build your reputation, five minutes to lose it. Uh, that's why people need to be watchful over what policies we have economically. We have way too much debt right now. We gotta cut. We gotta cut the debt. You know, when people talk about these programs, it sounds like a turn on to people, like, hey, let's erase student debt and things like that. You know, you, you, someone's got to mind the store here. You cannot give every, everything away for free and have a happy ending. It's economically impossible. It's never worked in in world history. And so for America to do well, for the dollar to remain constant, we have got to start becoming a nation that actually creates a surplus, that, that cuts a lot of spending. I mean, it's just like a person. Right now, if, if, if America came to you to borrow money, you'd probably say no, because you can't even cover your bills. You'll never pay me back because you're broke. And I I think more people need to realize that in in the government and voters and we got to change our path because we cannot go on like this. We cannot balloon from 20 trillion of debt to 40 trillion to 100 trillion and just imagine somehow it all works in the end. It has never worked in the end. I think the other problem is you have most of the politicians today are very, very old, right? I mean, an 80-year-old person does not really have skin in the game because they're already at their effective end of their life cycle. You know, we we need some decision makers who are maybe a few decades younger who actually have have a stake in the in the business because they actually have kids and 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 care about tomorrow. Because when you're when you're in your 80s, I mean, it's just a sad fact. You may have some wisdom, but you don't have the actuarial table of life to really make you a stakeholder. And I think that's another bit of the problem. I mean, yeah, if you take the deficit up enormously when you're 85, you'll never see the unhappy ending of it all. So we have a lot of problems in America, not in the mobile home park business. Mobile home park business doing good. America way screwed up.
1: So to piggyback on that, you know, what do you think about this $15 an hour minimum wage and how would that affect mobile home parks? You know, some say that it would help because you know some of the service-based jobs would, you know, they would make more, but some say it it would have a a counter effect. So what do you think? Well, let me tell you this. When I, back when I had the billboard business, I had my number one
0: advertiser was McDonald's. I had all the fast foods. I had McDonald's, I had Taco Bell, I had Burger King, all those guys. And over the years, you know, 15 years of working with them, I learned a lot about their businesses. I would learn like what, what products were profitable. That's what we would promote on the sign. I learned when those products were profitable, what the price points were and all that stuff. And in a McDonald's, for example, a typical McDonald's has often 60 employees. Some of them have more than that, but they come in two categories, the adults who are there full-time and the part-time kids, right? And McDonald's likes the part-time kids because it, it gets them involved in the community. They don't really need all those teenagers. They do it to be nice. And since they're doing it to be nice, you need a minimum wage that's reasonably low or they won't have that opportunity. So, you know, if you raise minimum wage, I can tell you exactly what will happen. They'll cut all of that temp labor. They'll keep all the adults who can run it without those teenagers. Have you ever looked at a McDonald's window? You see all these teenagers standing around at the drive through window late at night. They don't need yeah. those kids. They can let, 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 let three or four of them gone. And so that will be the hard decision. I think people don't understand the ramifications of this. If you If you raise minimum wage, a lot of people are going to be hurt. And, and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's a terrible idea. You, you know, we have a free market society. You can't say that 15 hours is appropriate in, for example, West Virginia, where it's currently at seven and a quarter, or in Missouri, where I am, where it's currently 10. You have to let the state set that. I, I think going back to my earlier comment, that actually is part of this civil war between the states. If you raise minimum wage, it makes employment more costly to factories looking to relocate from some of the states that have high wage. That's what they're trying to actually do in my opinion. Because if you look at the truth, which is a lot of manufacturers move to the Southeast because of low labor cost, well, I know let's jack up the labor cost and they won't leave California to move to Texas because they'll say, oh, well, it's the same cost if I move. So I don't. I, I think there's all kinds of inherent evil in that plan. I know people will say, well, that's ter- terrible, that people need to earn more. No, the free market's done a perfectly fine job with that. And I think the, the downside of it is far greater than any upside. I don't think the nation needs to set levels for states.
1: I I totally agree with you. So I would assume that that means that you think it would be a negative effect on mobile home parks. No,
0: no, 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 because my customers are not teenagers. My customers are adults. So what you're going to have is the adults that that are not making 15 an hour working at Taco Bell. Well, they're going to see a certain hike. And they're also going to see an elevation of their status because now they're a more important worker because they don't have those three extra teenagers. They just have Larry. And Larry, Larry is considered now by the under a much more important team member, so mm-hmm. I think it will actually help mobile home parks. What I'm saying is for for the nation, because I wear two hats. I'm in the mobile home park business, but I also live in the United States. The nation's going to get whacked with that policy. And people will look back and say that was the worst thing anyone ever did, and, uh, and then they'll have to try and undo it. It'll be then it'll be torturous trying to undo it. Yeah. Uh, so I yeah I, th- I think that's what another case of people are not looking at the overall impact. It, it's a it's a it's a it's a feel-good soundbite to some people, but those people don't know anything about business or economics or anything. So I don't trust their opinion because it, it's not gonna work good.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Well, Frank, this has been an amazing interview. I'm sure we could talk for another couple hours. Oh, easily, uh, we could go on for days, in fact. <laughs> I wanted to ask, you know, if there's a listener out there that would like to get a hold of you, uh, you know, what is the best way for them to do so?
0: Sure. If you you just go to mhu.com, you'll find me all over that thing. It's got all of our contact, everything on there. So that's just the easiest way. Just go to the website and and you'll find me everywhere. And even people Google up and find my number all the time and call me. I always answer the phone. I answer all kinds of crazy questions. I help kids doing college reports on the mobile home park industry do the next day. And
1: I try and give them facts and figures. So yeah, I'll talk to anybody. And he really does mean that. I mean, I talked to three new operators uh, in the past month and they were all like, yeah, I talked to Frank, you know, I I just called him up and started talking to him and you know, he's always driving somewhere, you know, every time they, they call you and that's been the same for me. So always appreciate your insights. I I, I helped
0: two Ivy league kids do their, do their uh, papers last year.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, So I'll help anybody. And I do believe that. And thank you for for being so willing to to help and share. And that that means a lot and does a lot for the industry. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Frank. Uh, It was a pleasure having you. Uh, That's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thanks. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five star review of the show.